All right, let's grab a Bible and let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Let's start in Matthew chapter 6 today. Matthew chapter 6. We're doing uh, some messages on soul health and we've obviously connected them to what John wished for his fellow believers and those he knew quite well when he said, I wish that you would be in health even as your soul prospereth. So we're moving along the premise that we need our soul to prosper. This goes well with Joshua 1.8 where he said, shall make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. There's success and there's good success. There's prospering there's good prospering. And we're dealing with the soul here, your inner being. It's not an airy-fairy thing. We're using plenty of scripture and learning some things. And today I want to look at this subject. We're going to have it in the passage where we find the model prayer or the disciples' prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, you know, outside of Bible-believing circles. And we're going to, it's, it's in the passage, but there's some things leading up to it and after it. And with it, I want to talk about the premise, the theme of nothing between my soul and the Savior. Now, this is truly uh, something that is, honestly, for a believer, this is pretty important. And uh, when we think about the fact that the center of our soul needs to be our relationship with God and God Himself, then this is an old-timey theme. The hymn goes, Nothing between my soul and the Savior not of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. The Chorus says, Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that His blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of His favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. That second verse says, Nothing between like worldly pleasure. Habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from Him ever sever. He is my all, there's nothing between. The other two verses go, Nothing between, nothing between like pride or station, self or friends, shall not intervene, though it may cost me much tribulation. I am resolved there's nothing between. The last verse of the standard edition of this hymn says, Nothing between, even many hard trials, though the whole world against me convene, watching with prayer and much self-denial. I'll triumph at last with nothing between, nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that His blessed face may be seen, nothing preventing the least of His favor. Keep the way clear, let nothing between. You know, the greatest disconnect in human life is between a soul and God. And it happened in the Garden of Eden, as we know. We need no other account. We need no other verifying witness but the Word of God. 
There's plenty of things that bear witness to it, but we need no other witness to know that this world is, is the way it is because something has come between the soul of each individual, the soul of mankind, and the soul of each individual. A child of God needs to have this thought, this prayer, and this motivation, nothing between. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, He made the way. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And you cannot be too young to grab this truth. I, I wish, I wish I had heard this and received it as a teenager. I didn't. Because the ultimate soul health, the ultimate health of who we really are is centered on this truth. You know, when we talk about revival meetings, no, we can't guarantee there will be a reviving. And by the way, don't pick that word apart. Well, something has to be living and then dead and die. Reviving is to get some life into something, okay? It's, it's that simple. And revival meetings, the foundation of revival meetings, I'm not talking about evangelistic meetings, but revival meetings. The core of a revival meeting is that the singing and the preaching would help people to be sure and get to the point where there's nothing between. Now, you might be a very active practicing Christian. Praise the Lord. So you don't need a giant dose of repentance as such. But I think you could find, and I could find, if we don't keep maintenance, if we don't keep this theme in our life, nothing between, then it will have effect upon us. So in this passage that has the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, the elements surrounding it, either side of it, are instructive. So I'd like for us to read, starting in verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men market to be seen of them. Otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. We'll be coming back to this and speaking about each part of it. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father, which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. But, you know, if you go to give somebody some cash, if you're going to count it out and make sure how much it is, or you want someone else to see you, it takes two hands to count it out. But it only takes one hand to reach in there and grab something and put it in the plate, or hand it to someone who's in need. It only takes one hand. It takes two hands. Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing if you don't stop and count it. That's the picture, okay? You say, oh, well, I couldn't possibly give it without knowing. Well, there you go. We'll talk about that. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets that they may be, again, so look at it, seen of men, as in verse 1. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, Enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask. And after this manner 
Therefore, pray ye. You should mark that three words after this manner. It's not the recitation of this prayer that gets something done. It's not the recitation of this word for word that reaches God. doesn't mean it's wrong for someone to repeat it. It might be the first prayer someone really learns. Amen. That's fine. But he said after this manner, and we, we will not go into the different things within this, but it's a wonderful study. We've got some things on that. After this manner, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven. And, and, and just notice the capital F. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Picture this for yourself, the manner of it. Lord, have your will done today in me and all the little things on earth. Same way it is done in heaven, and we know his will is done in heaven. Amen. Give us this day our daily bread, a contentedness, a sufficiency. We'll come back to this. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let me say this. If you're listening and you've had a thorough indoctrination into dispensations and stuff, I know all about them. I'm a moderate dispensationalist. But you are missing the boat. According to 1 Timothy 6, you're missing the boat. If you don't think there's a value in this age for us to learn from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just saying Paul, the ultimate dispensationalist, the Apostle Paul. You're not the ultimate dispensationalist. Paul was. Okay? For if you forgive, verse 14, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. These are communion, fellowship, trespasses. This is not about staying saved. It's not even about getting saved. However, it is a demonstrated thing that someone may want to come to Christ. Dale Moody dealt with a, a wealthy woman one time, and she was truly ready to come to Christ, be saved, and dealing with her in the after meeting. And she said, you said that we should be willing to forgive others if we want God to forgive us. Well, see, that's not work salvation, friend. That's common sense. If I am not willing to forgive horizontally, I'm not humble enough yet to ask God to truly forgive me vertically, which I do not deserve. It's full mercy. And he said, well, you're going to have to deal with God on your own. And away she went. A couple nights later, she showed up. And she was sitting in the preaching meeting. And he could just tell by the, by the countenance she had. And she came up to him after the service. But he could tell by her countenance during the service that something had happened. And she came and she said, it's a glorious thing to know that the slate is clean with others. So that we can come to God and truly ask him to forgive us. This is a Bible thing. Verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head, wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now I want to talk about four kinds of people in this passage. Four kinds of condition of your soul. Because your, your condition of your soul is who you really are. Okay, now, now hear me out. The devil works like this, one of the many ways. He'll get on one shoulder and he'll whisper stuff into your ear and he'll make it think that it's you thinking it. Bad stuff. I mean, sometimes really bad thoughts. 
Then he'll go to the other side and whisper in the other ear and say, and he's pretending to be God, he say, how could you think such a thing if you're really saved? Your new nature's not thinking it. Your soul's not thinking it. But you need to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against your soul. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. So when we look at these people, we, we, want to, we want to be on guard against being this kind of person and having this kind of soul attitude. The first one is in verses 1 to 4, and I've called this the hireling. Why the hireling? Because they're doing it to be seen. Okay? And he said, verse, end of verse 2, they have their reward. They're doing it to be seen. A hireling by dictionary, Webster's. A couple of the simple words, mercenary. Ready? A prostitute. Somebody who sells themselves. Somebody who serves for uh, wages and reward, and that's all. So in John 10, what does he say? That the hireling flees when the wolf comes. David was but a lad. And yet when the lion and the bear came, what did he do? He dealt with them. He didn't run. He didn't flee. He wasn't doing it for the little pitiful food and stuff he got. I mean, he, at that time in life, he was so insignificant. When Samuel came and said, Jesse, you, you, a king's going to come out of your household, they didn't even call David to the meeting. Alms. Alms are when you do something gratuitously or sometimes out of pity. It's something you give. So he said they do it to be seen. They are strategic. They are show-offs. Okay? They're doing it like Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were not required to sell something and give all of it. But they saw other people doing it, and so they wanted to be seen. And the Lord dealt with them through Simon Peter, giving them a chance to take care of it before it became terminal. And we know it became terminal. How does God feel about alms that are done in the right attitude? In in chapter 10 of Acts, he told Cornelius... Your alms have come up for a memorial. Now, in Acts 3, where that man was laying daily, he was there asking for alms, for pity, for something gratuitous. God always looks on our why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when he's speaking of the judgment seat of Christ, he said, the fire will try every man, woman, boy, and girl's work of what sort it is. That's what that is. That's our why. You might ask yourself this question sometimes. Would I do this if no one would know? If you wouldn't, you're a hireling. Now, it doesn't mean your whole life is. It just means that little attitude is creeping in. You need to get it cleaned out of your soul. You know, in ministry of any sort, it's real important to have the right motive. Do you have to be bribed or bought? Do you have to be badgered or, or blushed? In other words, someone embarrass you or shame you into service? We have to beware. The hiring says, what's in it for me? Many times, not outwardly. Outwardly, they're saying, look at me. Look what I'm doing. But the hireling falls in the trap. Now, can you and I end up with a hireling attitude? Absolutely. We can end up with a hireling spirit. And here's the thing. It changes our attitude and our experience within. For example, if that hireling thing has crept in and we don't get noticed or acknowledged, it bothers us. No, I'm not talking about God using you and God moving on somebody and 
them, you know, appreciating what you do. But many times people don't appreciate it till later. <coughs> Listen, pastors experience this many times. Here's how they experience it. They'll teach and they'll preach and they'll persevere and they'll pray. And then they might have someone come in and speak, an evangelist, say, or another pastor. And that pastor won't say anything any different. He won't say it in some spectacular way. And all of a sudden the light goes on because the pastor has been sowing and watering. And all of a sudden the light comes on and the people sometimes act like they have never heard this before. This is amazing. <laughs> so if you're doing it for people to say, oh, you have done such a good job, pastor, you're going to be disappointed. It's going to come back to bite you and haunt you. Amen. Being aware that things happen that way is really important. It's really important. So then look, starting in verse 5 that we've read, he said, when you pray, don't be as a hypocrite. So the second type of attitude that can come in is the hypocrite's attitude. I love Matthew 23, when Jesus is saying, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. It's an exclamation point at the end of hypocrites. That means he was exclaiming it. Do you pray? Okay. When? And where? And why? And how often? I'm not going to give you a number. I'm not judging you. Someone says, well, praying is for older people that have more time. No. No. <coughs> praying is for every single individual person. You know, for someone who's lazy, it's hard to pray because praying is probably... And I mean, this is a consensus among those who pray. I can promise you it's one of the hardest things to do, especially getting started on it each day. You will find that you might have great focus until the moment you decide to go through some prayer requests or your prayer list. I, would, I recommend a list. I, I don't think, see any way God's going to be offended if you have a list. And sometimes you, you know, say a name and you don't have great tears and joy or a deep expression, but you remembered them. Yeah. And you're going to remember to pray for people way more with a list than you will if you don't. It's very haphazard otherwise. And it doesn't really require any focus. We're just kind of going along. Samuel prayed as a child and learned to follow God in 1 Samuel 1-3. to David is a lad out there in the wilderness, out with the sheep. He would sing and he would pray to God. And he would sing about the Lord. And listen, he was so willing... Okay, He was so willing that he dealt with a lion and a bear. And then when you get to 1 Samuel 17, Goliath has been defying the children of Israel. The children of Israel have a leader who is heads, head and shoulders above, the Bible says, the other men in the army, King Saul. King Saul wouldn't budge. Goliath offered, even though they reneged, we know they would have, we knew they would, but... Even though, but they, he offered one-on-one, -on -one, all these other people don't have to fight and die, one-on-one, -on -one, somebody t can take me on, and Saul wouldn't. Nobody did. David showed up as a lad bringing a care package to his brothers. See, when you read your Bible, you better be careful. When, when his older brother accuses him of having mischief in his heart, he just wants to see the battle, that's his brother's attitude. That's not the Bible saying that's so about David. It's his brother's attitude because his brother was scared, and rightly so. But you see, David, who had spent so much time with the Lord praying, seeking God, worshiping God all alone, 
his sensibilities were completely offended when that Philistine got there and blasphemed God and nobody would stand up for God amongst his own children, the children of Israel. So he ends up going into battle. He couldn't take Saul's uniform. It was way too big. He just went in with what he knew worked for him. A sling. Not just one stone, but five of them because there were five giants for sure in the land who were notable in those days. Yeah, we ought to be able to pray in public if needed. I don't think you ought to get caught up on your private prayer in public. I realize Spurgeon used to ask men to pray way ahead of time and prepare. And, you know, his thing was you must pray at least five minutes, all that. But a lot of us realize, like D.L. Moody was in a meeting, large meeting, revival meeting, evangelistic meeting, and they called on one of these elders, these brothers, to pray, and he prayed and he prayed. And finally, D.L. Moody approached the pulpit and said, we're going to go ahead and sing the first song while our brother gets caught up on his prayer life. <laughs> so, so when you pray in public, just sweet, short, succinct, focused, not rambling. Uh, I realize when you bow your head to pray, you might think of stuff, but if it's time to give thanks. Now, everybody's different. Some people ask God to bless the food for years now. I've really believed he said that it's received with thanksgiving, so I give thanks for it. That's why many people, the old-time Christians, sometimes would do it at the end of the meal. They would give thanks for what they ate. I go ahead and give thanks ahead of time, hoping it's edible. Now, I've got a great situation. Mine's always edible. Amen. But you ever gone to somebody's house or eating out or something, and it, wasn't, it took a little discipline to eat it? Give thanks ahead of time. But have you ever noticed... You, you can ask somebody to pray over and give thanks for the food and they pray about everything and sometimes not even the food. Or, as a brother did in church recently, got up, going to pray for the offering. Quite a big, quite a good-sized crowd there. And he got up there and they asked him to pray over the offering. He said, Lord, we pray you bless this food. And he realized what he said and he was stifling it and he was laughing so hard inside his, his whole body, his chest was heaving and people were trying not to look up and I'm on the very, very back corner and I'm like, I'm about to fall on the floor. You can bet this. And he said so. The next two times they asked him to pray over the offering, he was very careful. Let me ask you this. Are you serious when you pray in secret? See, I'm not preaching at you. I'm just trying to exhort you. Don't be a hypocrite. Now watch. A hypocrite is not somebody who sets his aim high and comes short of it. But is trying. That is not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who, number one, does it to be seen, and that's primarily the only time they do it. It's okay to let somebody know you're praying for them. Paul did. You know, if, if Paul wrote and told people he was praying for them, I guess it's okay to do that. But, don't be a hypocrite <coughs> and tell somebody you prayed for them just because you know you should have. So we don't want to be a hypocrite in our soul. In prayer, in life. Next, verse 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetition. What? As the heathen do. For they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. How we ask matters to God. I'm not talking about a, a formula, but an attitude and an approach. Now watch, watch. When I was very young, spent a lot of time with my grandparents on my mom's side. And I would say to my granddad, I'd love to go out and do stuff with him. And, you know, even when I was a young fellow, he'd 
teach me how to go down there and cut down trees and stuff in the forest. Taught me to trap and hunt in those days up in Ohio. It was cold in the winter and game was abundant. And we didn't just waste it, we ate it. It was good. But sometimes I'd say, Granddad, can I go out and... And before I'd even get done, he said, I imagine you can. He said, I think what you want to ask is, may I? So oh, that's ridiculous. No, it really helped me. And I picked up that habit, and I pretty much, I'll say it to this day, I'll pull up to a drive-thru. And I'll say, may I have a, whatever, may I have a plain cheeseburger or plain hamburger? And they're like, well, yeah, you may. I might be sitting down with people close to me, and I might say, may I have the salt, please? It, it's a courteous thing. And the Bible tells us, Simon Peter says, be courteous one to another. Courteous is to have court-like manners. Not the kind of court some have been to, some of us, but the kind of court like a king's court, you know, royalty. Good manners. How we ask, how we learn to address, if you ever do go to the other kind of court, learn how to address. It will help you a little bit. At least give you a half a chance. Because he said, when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. They think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Much repetition is like chance. Repeating a phrase over and over again. Oh Lord, would you do this, oh Lord? Now, I don't know that this would apply to everyone. For me, it applies to me. Okay? I have found that I have a greater sense of communicating with my Lord and Him back with me, when instead of saying, Oh Lord, please do this. Oh Lord, please do this. Oh Lord, please do this. I, I tell myself, instead of doing that, if you can ask for it in Jesus Christ's name, then ask for it in Jesus Christ's name. And if you can't, don't. See, by their much speaking, end of verse 7, would you mark it? By their much speaking. Lord, please. Oh please. Oh please. Now, I'm not talking about how the widow wore it down the unjust judge. Not talking about that. That's not vain repetition. That's persistence. But you see, chance and, and all that, it's not by our effort. It's not by our expression or our excess. On the bush in Papua New Guinea, when someone dies or there's a tragedy like that, they'll have commonly what's called a house cry. And until you've been around it and seen it, I... I I, I, I had heard Ted talk about it, but I hadn't actually seen one. When I saw one, I've never, ever forgotten it. The anguish. Many years even before that, I was working at one of the largest cemeteries on the, in the southeast part of the United States. And we would have to be there, and you know they would do their thing, and then we would lower, hit the button and lower the casket and all that. And one of the burials that we were at was an Asian fella, and he had had a very successful restaurant. Uh, he had two or three of them, but they were, you know, they weren't fast food. They were like really the real deal, like Asian restaurants. And so he was of that kind of religion also, and they had the candles there, and I believe in his case they had a, a Buddha there. And uh, the custom, evidently in there, was to come by and take a hand of dirt and throw it in and drop a flower down in the hole on top of the casket before we close the vault. And without any warning or preparation, 
when his widow, his wife, got there, she literally jumped in the grave. And it caused a kerfluffle. We had to try to get her out and try to comfort her and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that house cry, they'll take and tear their clothes. They'll put dirt on their head like the Old Testament. They don't know anything about the Jews, okay? When you read about them, sackcloth and ashes and all that, they do that at a house cry on the other side of the world, out in the middle of the bush, out in the middle of nowhere. The application, though, is this. Carrying guilt, carrying grief, is not godly. Listen, I, I know what it's like for someone young to have their earthly life cut short. My baby brother, 15 years old, killed right in front of the church in the daytime on a weekday afternoon in front of the church my dad was pastoring. I know what that's like. I know it's my, well, like for my mama to go fairly early in life. But I can't carry an undue amount of grief and be who, I want, who God wants me to be and have a healthy soul. You can't do that with guilt either. It is not godly or healthy to have undue guilt once you've made something right with God. And if you've tried to make it right with others and they won't accept it, that's on them. We don't want to be like the heathen. Now, I could give you references. I'm going to give you a few references if you, in case you want to write them down. But you know them. 1 John 3, 23. Ephesians 5, verse 20. John 14, 13 to 14. What is that? That's the, the concept. That's the idea, the truth, the practice of in Jesus' name. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't want, our, our, we don't want to deal with life inside like a hireling. What we do, you know, what's in it for me. We don't want to deal with it like a hypocrite. We don't really do it, practice it inside, but we practice it outside. We don't want to be like the heathen, think that the amount of talking we do. Look, when it says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much in James 5, think about those words. Those are good, solid English words. Chosen by God. The effectual, fervent prayer. It's effectual. It has the right effect. Then that means it's not going to be repetitious like the heathen because that's not what God recommends to us. Fervent, that means our heart and mind, our soul are in it. Righteous means we're, we're staying right with Him. We're staying clean with Him, which is the last picture in this passage. And that's the healthy soul. Start in verse 12, going down to verse 15, and then down through verse 18. The healthy soul. When something is healthy, by dictionary definitions, it's sound, and it's, it, it's being sound in state or wholesome. Uh, if, it, if it was an illness, it has been healed. Healthy requires that we have to be healed along the way. Now, sometimes your body has healed itself because of how God made it without you necessarily knowing it. Sometimes something has come in and invaded your body and God's dealt with it through antibodies or He's dealt with it sometimes through, you know, we, we make sure we keep up on some uh, vitamins and things like that and supplements. Come to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, this is the only other passage we'll look at. Hebrews 12. Many times a body does it without your awareness, but your soul cannot. I beseech you, therefore, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 
the soul is our, we have, to, we have to do something about it. It's not like our body. Now, if you just put stuff that's really bad for your body in and bad for your body in, it will catch up to you. Now, the, the human body is amazing. It can, it can stay resilient for years and years, even with mistreatment. If you think about it, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 12. Now, I want to take Hebrews 12, and I hope you've kept Matthew 6, because Matthew 6, in verse 12, he says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Then in verse 14, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. By the way, verses 16, 17, 18, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites. So this idea of the hypocrites, okay? Let me give you an illustration. I got saved. Didn't know a thing, truthfully. Didn't know all the books of the Bible yet after I got saved. Went off to a Bible college. They said, hey, if you know God's called you to do something, I said, well, he has, but I don't know how to put it into words. Go. So I hitched a ride with someone who was going up there. Went to Bible college. Got there. Was there a few months. They'd have meetings and they'd have, they'd sell you know Christian good Christian books and different things. And I picked up a couple of books and uh, one of them was on fasting and other stuff and praying. And I read this little pamphlet by one of the old timers. So I decided the Lord wanted me to pray during my lunch each time and do without lunch for a while. And I was very careful for no one to know it, as in telling them or even letting on. So about the third or fourth day of doing that, whatever, that first week, I come back to my little dormitory room. We had the little iron bunk beds, you know, just kind of almost military style. And sitting there at this little table I had, sitting on my chair, was the dean of men. And I was like, can I help you? Because I know he's authority and a boss, but I didn't invite him over <laughs> to come in and sit down. I was just coming out of the world, okay? He said, yeah, I need to ask you something. And he said, uh, uh, it's, it's been brought to my attention. You haven't been eating lunch. I said, so? And he said, well, I need to know why. I said, really? Why would you need to know why I'm not eating lunch? He said, look, he said, are you fasting and praying? And I said, what business is that of yours? He said, because if other people notice, according to the Bible, if other people notice, then it's not going to do any good if they know. Now, I'm just a baby Christian, but I had read those books on fasting and praying, and I had picked this up enough to say, whoa, just wait a minute. Open my Bible to Matthew 6, and I said, it doesn't say if someone figures it out. It says, moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. I said, I'm not doing anything at all to let on that I'm doing it. And even if I have a headache from not eating, I don't let anybody know. And I have the, a good, positive countenance. And I said, so my Father in heaven knows that I'm doing it secretly. He's like, I never thought of it that way. I said, well, it's in the books that you guys recommend. And later I calmed down a little, well, maybe not a lot through the years. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 12. So the picture is the healthy soul has to forgive in order to be forgiven in a fellowship thing. Fellowship. Your standing before Christ is settled. But what state you find yourself in is a daily thing. The condition, the fellowship. And the reason I say that is it's real important 
Because in Hebrews 12, we're not going to read all the passage, but verse 5 down to 17, he's talking about the teaching on chastening. Chastening is not punishment. Chastening may well feel like it because, verse 11 says, Now no chastening. I wish you would circle, mark whatever, the word no. No chasing for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. So if God's working on you, if God's training you, if God is building you, training you, helping you, chastening you, it's not joyous. There's hundreds of illustrations of it. And that is you watch somebody who's physically trying to be fit or physically preparing for, say, military service. Their workouts are strenuous. And they're not just running around laughing and joking while they're doing it. It's hard. Much studies of weirdness of the flesh. Getting your assignments done. Studying your Bible. Sometimes memorizing your Bible. It's hard work. Prayer is hard work. So, for the present, it's not joyous. So you're not being chastened if it's okay and you're okay with it. Oh, I'm, boy, I love God. God's working on me. I sure am thankful. Well, then that's, you can be thankful He's working on you. Amen. But, he said afterwards, look, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness and which exercise thereby. Now watch this. In the same passage, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down the feeble knees, verse 12. Make straight paths for your feet, verse 13. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be what? Market healed. Sometimes you got to make sure you get some healing for your soul. Now, that healing is not generally consistent or consist of constantly thinking about what someone's done to you or constantly thinking about how you let God down. Because we're not like the heathen. We don't make up for it by guilt. We don't make up for it by grief. We don't make up for it by repetition. So watch. Verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. In Romans, he adds to that or qualifies. It says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Do your part. David said, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You can't necessarily do anything about the other person. Verse 15. Looking diligently... Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now watch. Lest, any, lest there be any fornicator, profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Why? He didn't keep his soul healed up with God. If you and I fail of the grace of God, others are going to taste of that root of bitterness. And many times... As in our passage in Matthew 6, the healthy soul has to, has to get recovered. Look, sometimes you have to forgive others. Sometimes you've got to forgive yourself. And there's sometimes, and I say this reverently, you've got to forgive God. Not that God did something wrong, but that your soul is in danger of becoming bitter towards the Lord because something happened. Now, I can tell you this. I know people that after five, four, five, six, eight years, they still keep grieving as if it was today over, say, the loss of a loved one. That's not of God. It's okay to miss people and stuff, but we don't sorrow as others which have no hope. 
And God didn't mean for His atonement and His propitiation and His redemption to be so anemic, you might say. Forgive your others, forgive yourself, forgive God. Now, soul health, once you experience it, is something you want. I like what Chambers points out, that the person with health, health isn't always aware of it. But you are aware of it when it's not there, I hope. So, has the hireling creeped in? Has it crept in and you know, spoiled some of what you do in the work of God? In the local church? In your home? Has a hypocrite come in and you, you tend to do it because some might know? You tend to, to do it because... Now watch, now wait. To do it for the sake of others is still okay. To show up to church and do the right thing because it could hurt another believer is still okay. But the key is that in our heart and soul we get ready and right and there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Now, what about the heathen come in? Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Oh please, 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 Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I love that old song. It says, what sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. From the book of life, they've all been torn out. I don't remember them anymore. Well, that's, that's a good, solid, that's doctrine. I know people, know them well, who are tempted at times to think that to be burdened or feel guilty or whatever is what's godly. That's why they do it. Well, that's the, that's the right thing to do, to feel this way and that but it's not. It's not of God. Because He heals our soul. That's, that hymn is such a good hymn. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, not of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. There's nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. So that His blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Nothing between like worldly pleasure, habits of life, though harmless they seem. Must not my heart from him ever sever. He is my all. There's nothing between. Here, here you go. Ready? Nothing between like pride or station. Self or friends shall not intervene. Though it may cost me much tribulation, I am resolved there's nothing between. Nothing between even many hard trials, though the whole world against me convene. Watching with prayer and much self-denial, triumph at last with nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that His blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of His favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between.